Hey everybody, welcome to the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy, excited for today's conversation with Gen Z activist and dynamo, Victor Sheik. We'll get to Victor in just a couple of seconds, but first, let me thank you for tuning in today. We do appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. Let me tell you a little bit about Victor. He is a Gen Z speaker, writer, and organizer. He currently hosts the daily show On the Move with Victor Shi and co-hosts iGen Politics with Jill Weinbanks. He also serves as strategy director for Voters of Tomorrow, is a writer for Resolute Square, and is a rising senior at UCLA. Previously, Victor was elected the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, organized on presidential, state, and local campaigns, and interned at the DNC and the White House. He has also appeared on MSNBC, CNN, PBS, and has been published by, among others, CNN, USA Today, and the Chicago Tribune. Victor, welcome into the back room. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, very excited to talk with you. I love talking to young people who are really engaged in politics, especially now that America seems to always be teetering on the brink of autocracy. But before we get into the issues of the day, I want to go back a little bit in time, back to uh, your early, early youth. Little Victor, what were you like as a little kid? Were you walking around like carrying portfolios full of Obama speeches? What was happening when you were like eight, nine? What were your interests? When did this all start for you? (laughs) <laughs> well, I wish I could say I was I was as passionate about politics as I am right now, but I was um, up until eighth grade, I was pretty much just your average kid. I would play video games. I would go out and, you know, go outdoors, play sports. I mean, it was it's actually a little bit cringeworthy for me to think about what I was like younger. But I got involved in politics when I was in eighth grade because I was sitting in um, the back of my social studies classroom. And my teacher um, lectured all of us on the political spectrum. It was a couple of weeks before the Iowa caucuses in 2016. And it was really interesting because she explained, you know, what Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton stood for. And then on the other end, of course, what Donald Trump stood for. And then at the end, she told all of her students that we could make a difference if we got involved in politics. And so I did that. I went to a congressional office for the first time and just asked, you know, how can I get involved? And mm-hmm. um, lo and behold, they said, you know, you can knock some doors, do, you know, what typical organizers do. And so I interned for them that summer. And then ever since the the rest is history. And I've just been grateful to have teachers like my eighth grade teacher, but also my AP government teacher who really fostered this sense of civic engagement and political activity within me. Um, and ever since, it's just been um, a wild ride. But really, teachers have been the backbone of my kind of political um, engagement. Teachers are really the ones that inspire and motivate children at a very young age to do so many things and yeah. in our country unfortunately the emphasis on education the resources de- dedicated to public education in particular it's like no one seems to really care no one seems to appreciate just how important ch- teachers are i mean teachers what they make I mean, it's the most important it, job in the world they make nothing i mean they are the unsung heroes of our democracy in so many different ways i mean shaping just the way that i mean at least for me if it weren't for, for example, my English teacher in high school, I wouldn't be an English major now. And I think that just the the way that teachers and and sort of the impact they can have on students is um, we don't give them, like you said, as much credit as we should. And, you know, just in terms of supporting teachers, like you said, I mean, they deserve higher pay. They deserve better conditions. No one should be going through, you know, all the attacks on education and 
um, teachers as we're seeing right now in Florida. But, you know, at least for me, they've had such a profound impact. And I think for so many people, they have such a big influence and I, I wish they got more than what they have now. But um, if any of the teachers are listening to this podcast, I hope they all know just how much I appreciate them and we all appreciate you. Mm. And so aside from teachers, who are your early inspirations? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I mean, my my parents did have a big influence on me. I will also say, like, growing up, I read, um, I mean, I was a big Harry Potter kid. That was that was fun to read. Um, but I didn't really have, like, anyone who I was, like, starstruck by. I guess maybe Obama, because I'm from Chicago, and I remember seeing the 2008, um, you know, inauguration uh, in Grant Park, Um from home and it was just such an just inspiring hopeful moment of you know this is what the best of our country looks like when people from so many different backgrounds can come together and elect the first black man as president and so I, I think Obama has always sort of lived with me as you know being a Chicagoan but um I didn't really have anyone who I was you know starstruck by mm -hmm. Taylor Swift perhaps although now Taylor Swift is uh making a I mean I'm not a Swifty, and, and many of my Gen Z peers shame me for that. But um, the other day, it was reported that Taylor Swift has done a lot to register uh, young people yeah, to uh, vote, and it's quite remarkable. 35,000, and you tweeted a lot about yeah. that. Uh, you mentioned the canvassing that you did, but what was your first real involvement in politics? Yes. So it, I would say, I mean, a lot of my political kind of formation and like, uh, I guess just the the way that I kind of grew up in politics was through that first experience. I was interning for Congressman Brad Schneider here and just um, in, in Illinois and um, knocking on doors, making phone calls, just really kind of getting those kind of grassroots organizing skills. And then um, I did that basically throughout high school. My first ever paid position on a campaign was for the Biden campaign in 2020, just as an organizer um, in Minnesota. It was all during COVID, which was really interesting time, but it was just all phone calls, managing a team, um, but kind of starting off as that kind of organizing position. And then um, later on, I sort of branched out into more of the communications realm um, with some interesting organizations and um, think tanks throughout the uh, past couple of summers. But really, I would say a lot of sort of the way that I think about politics and just reaching people um, and, you know, have, forming those relationships was through that first um, internship back in uh, in between eighth grade and high school um, interning for uh, Congressman Brad Schneider and just walking and, you know, knocking on doors, talking to people, mm -hmm. um, having conversations. And how does a young person who is politically motivated, polit politically engaged or a political junkie, how does one become a Biden organizer and then ultimately a Biden delegate? How does that process work? Yeah. So I think there's two different tracks. I think being an organizer um, is definitely something that, at least for me, I started off on the Biden campaign really early on. I would do trips from Illinois to Iowa basically every weekend. And a lot of politics, and and this is the, I think, the amazing part about campaigning and politics is that I think it's one of the kind of last kind of remaining true meritocracies in the sense that if you show up on a campaign, you do the work, you just say yes to everything, you show up and, and you stay late you'll get rewarded really quickly. And if you're good at your job, I think people will see that. And so I would just go to Iowa and just volunteer and knock on doors. And then um, after the 2020 convention, I got asked if I wanted to, you know, do an organizing position. And um, I said yes, because it was just one of those things where, you know, like it's an, an election of our lifetime. And so that sort of, I think, is partly what led me to organizing. But being a Biden delegate is actually a much more complicated and esoteric process. My AP government teacher back in high school basically told me that 
as long as you turn 18 by election day um, in November, you can run to become a delegate for any presidential candidate. And so I said, you know, I guess why not? And so I applied to become a Biden delegate and then I got enough petition signatures and then I started campaigning. Um, but it so was wait, wait, really- Just back up for one second. Yeah. When you say you applied, what, what does that mean? Where does one yeah, go? So, there's a kid, there's a young person out there who wants to be a, yeah, a yeah. Biden delegate. Where, where do they actually start? Right. So at least in Illinois, um, for me, I remember the first kind of way that I learned about it was by going to this meeting that basically every congressional district has for anyone interested in becoming a delegate for a presidential campaign. And then at, at that meeting, there would be um, uh, campaign representatives from each campaign, and then you would get connected with them and then um, fill out an application to um, you know put your name into possibly becoming a delegate. And then from there, if they select you, then you'll be given all the materials you need to start gathering petition signatures, which lasts usually from like November um, up until uh, February or whenever, or sorry, from November until like December or January of uh, the presidential election year. And then after that, it's basically as long as you get enough petition signatures, your name is on the ballot and then you start campaigning and um, just try to do your best after that. And then come primary day, then you're uh, people vote for you and then people um, meaning it, like you're actually campaigning as if you're running for office like that right, the, the right. same process yes wow. yes um but the way that delegates are then kind of awarded and this is all kind of where luck fell into place was um it's proportional so um in your congressional district there are about five delegates per presidential candidate and um let's say if joe biden wins 60 percent of the vote which he did in my congressional district, three of his five delegates end up going to the convention. Um, and so for me in 2020, I was actually the, I barely got enough votes to end up in third place. And so I ended up going to the convention, but all virtually because of COVID. Mm -hmm. That must have been just incredible to be a part of that kind of process. I mean, it's, it's definitely surreal, but I like it at the end of the day, it's just knowing that, you know, as messy as politics is at many times, it's, just, I think there's something about knowing that you can be a part of something bigger than yourself and mm -hmm. be a part of something where if you deeply believe in it, um, hopefully you're you're contributing in some way, no matter how big or small. But, um, you know, I think for any young person who's thinking about going into politics, it really just starts um, at, you know, whatever level you feel you feel comfortable with. And, and it doesn't matter how big or small of an impact you have, it's an impact. And I think that's um, sort of what I've felt like, at least during my time in politics, is just knowing that, you know, if you even have one conversation with someone and you're able to mm -hmm. change that person's mind or get them to think about things maybe a little bit differently, that's just, there's no feeling better than that. Mm -hmm. And so where do you go with this experience that you've acquired so far? Like, do you have aspirations to run for alderman in Chicago or Congress someday? Yeah. I mean, where, where, do you, I, where do you see yourself in 5, 10, 15 years politically? Yeah, I, I get asked that question a lot. I don't think I'm going to run for office. Um, I, I I think that has uh, already happened. And um, I would love to just help out um, on the community. I'm really passionate about communications. And I find the whole kind of kind of dying down of traditional legacy media and the kind of spurring of like new media and different ways of um, communication to be really fascinating. And so I think I'm much better behind the scenes, mm -hmm. but definitely involved in campaigns and, um, you know, maybe government work sometime, um, but probably won't be uh, running a, or launching a campaign for myself anytime soon. I think you're a natural politician, so I don't know. I'm not so oh. sure. Never say never. But um, so you got On The Move, which is your podcast, and then you do iGen Politics with Jill Wine Banks. Um, you having fun doing podcasts? 
Oh yeah, I mean, that uh, both are really fun. So the one that I do with Joe Weinbanks was the first one that I um, did, and that's been going on for more than three years, which is crazy to think about. But we both met when we were running to become Biden delegates. She, Jill, my co-host, was running a couple of districts up north, and um, we met at the uh, delegate kind of um, convention or the delegate the Illinois delegate um, party meeting. And um, I remember seeing her, and I was like, "You're Jill Weinbanks, who I see on TV talking about, you know, like the Mueller in, uh, report, right?" And she said yes, and um, she wondered, you know, how someone can be so young and still support Biden because at the time there weren't many young people supporting um, then candidate Joe Biden, and so uh, you know it would be interesting to create something where you know we can bridge the intergenerational divide, and so. Um, we thought of doing a podcast and it's just been sort of a dream come true as for her, she was a journalism major at, um, in college and for her now to be able to interview people. And then for me, as just a young person who kind of sees people on TV and then to, you know, email them and say, you know, would you be interested? And then, mm -hmm. you know, we'll say yes. It's just been one of the, and as you know, I mean, it's just such a cool thing to talk to people who you yeah. just admire. And so um, that's been a really awesome uh, podcast and we um, just try to kind of bridge the generational divide and from our different generational perspectives. And the one that I do is more shorter form, about 10, 15 minutes and um, interviews people with sort of a Gen Z focus and um, talks about some of the issues that are facing um, Generation Z and both are just really fun to do. Um, a lot of work, but um, it, it's 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 really fun to, to do both. So with regard to Gen Z and yeah. the issues that are important and the election that's going to be coming up next year, uh, when you think about gun reform, when you think about climate, when you think about choice and the right to have an abortion and reproductive rights, saving democracy, one would think that if young people don't vote now, what is ever going to motivate them to vote. You tweeted in April, quote, mark my words, Gen Z is watching, Gen Z is paying attention, and Gen Z will make Republicans in Tennessee and across the nation pay for messing around with our lives in 2024. Is that going to happen? I I am a strong believer that will happen. Um, and I say that because of two things. I think first, um, Republicans right now, I think, are waging a war on young people like we've never seen before. And you see the response in places that are traditionally red, like Tennessee, like Florida, um, Texas, where you have Republicans actively working against basically everything that young people care about. When you go down each of those issues, abortion rights, trying to overturn uh, you know, reproductive rights. Um, when you talk about gun violence, there's no action being taken at all by these Republican state legislatures to uh, move on this issue. When you talk about climate change, when you talk about just literally anything else, there is nothing that they're doing that would benefit our lives. And I think young people are really, whether you're Republican, whether you're Democrat, I think people are just sort of exhausted by this inaction from elected officials. That's why you see people going to the streets. That's why you see people now running for office at record high rates, young people running for office at record high rates. I think that's really going to be an indication of what's to come. There was also a really interesting Politico piece recently about the shift of um, college towns to increasingly kind of democratic, mm. um, kind of increasingly democratic sides. And I mean, it's astronomical, just the way that the electorate has shifted from 2000 to 2020 in college towns. And people have gotten way more democratic. And I think partly it's because Republicans have just been really bad on trying to kind of engage with young people. 
Um, so I think that's kind of one end of it. And I think the other end of it, and this is, you know, it's, it, it, I think it needs to be amplified a lot more, but what President Biden and Kamala Harris are doing for young people right now, um, in just this week alone that we're recording this, President Biden launched the first ever um, gun violence prevention office at the White House, the first ever climate civilian corps. I mean, and he's done a lot of different things for Gen Zers that no president has ever done. And so I think when Gen Zers kind of look at our political climate right now, I think they're going to go to the ballot box knowing, one, the threat that Republicans pose for our lives. But also, at the end of the day, as much as some people might be concerned about Biden's age, people will look at this record and see that there really is only one person um, in 2024 who will deliver for us. And I think combined that will um, increase or, or I guess really motivate uh, a young electorate um, that is sick and tired of just kind of Republican nonsense and just restore a sense of normalcy. Mm. I've, I've said many times that I, I don't really understand the voting statistics in this country. In the Democratic Party, for example, maybe it's 55 to 60 percent of the yeah. party votes in an election. And it right. boggles my mind that like we don't see 90 percent turnout among young people. Yeah. You have your whole life ahead of you. People your age have their whole lives ahead of them. How are we not at 90 percent, given what we know where we are in this country and the threat to young people and young people's future and the planet? Why are we not at 90 percent? Yeah, yeah, I, I wish uh, I wish we were at 90 percent. And I, I think part of the reason why you, you see it turn out kind of at least for younger generations lagging behind that of older generations, I think first it's just you know, I think young people traditionally have had this sense that government doesn't work for them. Why will my vote matter? Um, you know, all of those kind of traditional notions for why young people don't vote. But I think since 2018, you see, you know, and the data shows this is that, you know, young people are voting at rates much higher compared to um, uh, younger people in the past. And right. I think part of that is because one government just really hasn't worked for them and they want to see people who will actually represent their interests. And so there really isn't, I think more young people now realize that going to the streets or posting on social media or just sort of traditional activism mm -hmm. won't cut it, that voting is really the last option we have. Mm -hmm. You know, a perfect example is, is gun violence. We can go to the streets all we want, but at the end of the day, if we have elected officials who are still beholden to the NRA or who won't take action on gun violence, it doesn't matter because, at, because laws are what will change things. And so I think now there's a sense among young people that voting is really the last option and the only option we have if we want to create systemic and um, long change. Um, but I still think, you know, the numbers aren't as high as where we need them to be. And the challenge is going to be for Democrats to really do their job going to college campuses, getting young people to become civically engaged, mm -hmm. do registration uh, drives. As we were talking about Taylor Swift, everyone has their part, I think, in this election to do um, to, to get young people to care about and to register to vote. And so, um, you know, it's going to be a challenge. But I think if there is one election where you're going to see a lot of young people really turn out, I mean, in 2020, the the numbers were more than half of young people. I hope it's, like you said, 90 percent. The vast majority of young people will go out there and vote. Um, but I think this election, we will see record rates. You know, the people who say, like, my vote doesn't count. It, You know, the, yeah. the truth is, even in, the, in a, uh, an inequitable country like America, in many ways, there's one day out of the year where the billionaire and the janitor are equal. Where, yes. they, where they have the exact same power and the power to move the needle. That's point one. Point two is that I see a shift in young people going from the system doesn't work, government doesn't work for me, to 
I could change that system. I could change government right. if I get yeah. in the system. You look yes. at people like Maxwell Frost down in right. Florida. Like, that's how, you know, like it or not, you don't just do away with what we have. That's not, that's not realistic. It's not going to happen. But what you can do is get in the system and you change yes. it from within. Yes. And that's been very inspiring to see more and more young people in the last two, three, four, six years jump into the system because that is how it's going to change, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and there are so many phenomenal organizations out there who are trying to get young people more, uh, more young people elected and running for office. One organization is Run for Something um, founded by Amanda Littman, and she has amazing statistics on her website about the number of young people over the past five years who have um, signed, expressed interest in running for office, who have actually run for office, and the number of young people who have won for one office. I mean, we can, you just mentioned Maxwell Frost, but there's also, um, I mean, Nabila Syed from my home state, Illinois, became the first Gen Z uh, member of the state legislature. You have um, now in 2024, um, another Gen Z are running for office um, across in Maryland and Texas. And so it's really remarkable, I think, what we're seeing, this trend of young people um, going, like you said, within the system to change things. And that's how you're really going to get things uh, moving is if, you know, you you end up going to the system, offering that perspective. And I think there's a hunger for that. Mm -hmm. um, I think people want to see that sort of representation. And what that does then is it inspires other young people to get involved in the system, too, when they see one of their peers running it makes us much more excited to get involved on a campaign or to go vote because we see someone like us actually getting involved and showing that we can be in the system and we can actually make a difference. Mm -hmm. And there are also issue-specific people like David Hogg, for yeah. example, with gun reform. Yes. Voices like that that not only bring their own experience, personal yeah. experience, but are so good at articulating a, that particular position and the more young people we see like that, whether it's women's rights or gun rights or climate, I think that kind of engagement is just so critical. And speaking of engagement, you are quite a prolific tweeter. And so I want to shift the conversation to Trump. You've been tweeting a lot in the last 24 hours about something Mehdi Hassan, the anchor from MSNBC, posted. It was a brilliant montage of Trump's cognitive impairment. He took all the clips over the last eight years and literally presented a case in about a minute and a half of essentially, let's not talk about Joe Biden. Joe Biden's okay. Listen to this guy. And do you think things like that are effective or is it just preaching to the choir? Um, um, this is something I think about so much because I, I for one, uh, being in the communications world, I mean, it's so frustrating to see the number of outlets who are solely focused on Joe Biden's age. You know, sure, he's 80 years old, but he's only three years older than, you know, Trump, who's 77 years old. And, um, you know, there, there just seems to be this really heavy emphasis on Joe Biden when the record and what he's doing speaks for itself. I mean, he recently went to, um, you know, India and then went to uh, Vietnam and then went to Alaska and then went to D.C. all within the span of four days. And it's like, you know, if I did that, I would be, you know, sleeping for the next two, two weeks. But Biden's exactly. still doing his job, but the media still focuses on his age so much. And so I think to have voices like Mehdi Hassan, um, who did an amazing montage, uh, who I, I urge all of uh, your audience to check out. It's a three minute long clip and he just does such a good job showing, you know, if we're really going to talk about age, let's talk about Trump's age just as much as we talk about Biden's age. Um, let's not shy away from that. And I think there is this sort of, I don't know, reluctance from mainstream media to talk about Trump's age, maybe because they think it won't get them ratings. I, I don't know what it is, but it's um, this lack of willingness to, I think, call out Trump's age. And I'm, um, I think Mehdi Hassan, you know, whether or not it reaches Republicans, I don't know. But at least it 
gets the narrative kind of going that, you know, talk about Trump's age too, you know, don't forget about that. And um, I, I think the more we can see that from people like Mehdi Hassan, people who are, uh, who have a platform who can reach people, I think that's really important. You know, it's interesting, the instances of Joe Biden's issues with quote unquote mental acuity versus that of Trump are astoundingly disparate. And to yeah. your point, Biden is flying all over the world. He's meeting with heads of NATO, heads of state. When you see him at a podium, he's talking statistics. He's going on and on. And so once in a while, he screws up. Trump sounds like a moron 24-7. Yeah. It's like all you hear about is Biden, yet he's the guy yeah. that's doing so much shit and gets cut. Right. No slack whatsoever. We live in an upside-down world, and it's crazy. Yeah, you know, I I don't know if it's because that's the only thing that the media thinks that if it, you know, if it talks about Joe Biden's age, then it will attract more viewers. But you know, I often think about you know, just imagine a world in which the media could cover just policies that Biden has passed. I mean, that could be so. Just spending five minutes of, in each you know hour talking about everything Biden has done, it, it it would be revolutionary if the media did that. But no, they talk about Biden's age. They talk about the polls when you know they really don't really mean much anymore. Um, but it, it's just this lack of willingness to call Trump out for these things. And like you said, it, I don't know if it's both sides of them. Um, Margaret Sullivan recently had a piece in The Guardian that talked about the way that the mainstream media covers things. And it's all sort of in the veneer of neutra neutrality and objectivity when you literally have a party right now that seeks to destroy democracy. You have a former president who's been indicted four, uh, four times, who is a proven rapist, who has been impeached twice, and we still treat him like a normal presidential candidate. And it's like, that has to be long gone. There is only one serious party right now and one serious presidential candidate right now, and it's Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. And so I think for the media, they have a lot of soul searching to do. Um, and, you know, I, I hope Mehdi Hassan's video montage at least gets the ball rolling a little bit about talking more about Trump's age, talking more about Trump's deficiencies and spending a little bit less time on Biden's age and talking more about Biden's historic record and accomplishments. Um, that's what I think viewers also really want. Um, uh, but mainstream media, I don't think will ever, I don't know. I hope they change. You have one candidate who is all about policy. And to yeah. me, he is the most successful, productive first-term president in modern history, perhaps all of history. And the, yeah. on the other hand, you have a candidate who doesn't give a shit about policy. It's all performative. And the people who love him are there at the Jerry Springer show. That's that's it. And so the media, they just go where they think the audience is. I don't know why they don't do a better job. And you saw, saw that with uh, Kristen Welker's interview with Trump. I mean, there were so many moments where I think Kristen Welker could have been more forceful on pushing back on it, all of his lies, but she didn't. But then you, I mean, Mehdi Hassan, I think is a great journalist. So is John Stewart, who Absolutely. shows us how do you push back. Mehdi Hassan interviewed Vivek Ramaswamy and, you know, he just asked a simple question of, you know, uh, I mean, is this what you stand for? Vivek wouldn't answer. And he kept on asking mm -hmm. and asking. And that's sort of, I can't believe more journalists don't know how to do that or no. more anchors don't do that, or maybe they're not willing to do that. But, you know, with these candidates, you can't let them get away with things. You have to hold their feet to the fire. You have to present evidence and, and receipts, come prepared. I mean, those are things. I mean, if Mehdi Hassan and John Stewart could do a boot camp for all anchors, I think that would be really beneficial. Um, yeah, no, you're right. And I'm glad you brought up Mehdi Hassan again, because I'm a huge fan of him because yeah. of what you're saying. He is on a major news network. He is the yeah. anchor of a show, and he's showing us that it can be done. It I saw that interview with Ramaswamy, where Ramaswamy is talking about some documents and what he said. And he's like, uh, no, I, I've got it right here. I've got it right, right here. And Ramaswamy yeah. 
kept lying, even though the receipts yeah. are right here. But that's okay. At the end of the day, if you expose them for the liars they are, that's fine. But there is that normalization you mentioned before. You know, A, they want to get these people on in the first place. B, they want them to come back. C, they don't want to mm -hmm. ruffle the campaign people's feathers, the, the RNC. They don't want to ruffle any feathers. And if that's what your motivation is, then you just de facto go to this place of normalization because that's right. the alternative. You either normalize right. it or you call it out for the fucking lunacy that it is. Yeah. There's no middle yeah. ground. Right. And it seems like it's it's repeating exactly what happened in 2016, which is, I mean, I, I remember just taking that, you know, Trump interview with Kristen Welker as another example. I mean, in 2016, one of the things we, I think the media messed up uh, on was treating everything Trump said as if it were a headline and it deserved attention and, you know, putting every single tweet that he would post during his presidency up um, on the screen. And they did the exact same thing in uh, just, you know, last week when Trump said something about, you know, how I am the most pro or like, you know, I am a pro-abortion candidate and, you know, this is what I believe. And as if, you know, he's he's some, you know, pro-choice candidate and, you know, NBC ran a headline that said, you know, exclusive, this is what Trump said. And it's like, you know, you should not be running that headline. I mean, there are these things where not everything he says is newsworthy and we shouldn't be giving it the legitimacy or the credibility that it deserves because the man literally installed, you know, three Supreme Court justices, made it his entire campaign to overturn abortion or his, his, his entire presidency to overturn abortion. He did that. And there are multiple instances since then that he said that he would want to restrict abortion even further. And so I think the media really has to think before it, you know, runs these headlines. And it's just nothing that he says should be that newsworthy anymore um, and should not be the leading headline on a major news site. But it seems like, um, you know, these publications aren't learning uh, from their mistakes. My, my last question to you is about being woke. Uh, to me, woke means you're not sleeping anymore, right? That's it. Very simple. <laughs> Very literal yeah. definition. Right. Uh, it's been so associated with your generation, young people in general. To me, woke means you just give a shit about people, people who are suffering, yeah. people who are needy. What does yeah. being woke mean to you? I mean, it's being aware, having basic empathy, knowing that our country has had long-term systemic struggles with racism and that it requires all of us to do our part to hopefully right those wrongs. But I think part of the reason why it's becoming this term is, I think this partly speaks to the then Democrats are on, is hanging on to these really innocuous and meaningless words and somehow manipulating them and turning them into things that people then somehow have a fear of and, and you know, being able to kind of catch on to these slogans. I mean, it's just something that Republicans are able to do much better than Democrats. But I think for the vast majority of young people, I mean, I was just having this conversation with um, someone from college about, you know, the whole war on critical race theory. And I was I asked him, you know, did you know what CRT was before Republicans started to make a campaign out of it? And he said, no, I mean, and neither did I. I mean, these are not things that young people are learning in the classroom, at least before law school, which is a term, you know, which is where it usually is taught. But I mean, Republicans are somehow making these words into these, you know, phrases that there just aren't. And but young people, I think, think see right through that. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, when you talk about wokeness, when you talk about CRT, when you talk about DEI, it's just about how we can build a better future where people don't have to, you know, go through these really terrible, you know, racist and misogynistic and just homophobic, um, you know, systems. And we can start to build a future that, you know, we can all live in. Yeah.
So clearly you're, you're not suffering from the woke mind virus, are you? I don't think so. Okay. I, I mean, that just, it just seems so common sense. It's just, you know, you, yeah. there's a world out there that just doesn't uh, involve just me. You know, like I, right. there are people right. that I'm, a, I'm aware of what they're going yes. through. Um, yes. my, my last, last question to you is we here in the back room like to get a window into people's souls. And the best way to do that is through music. We already discussed Taylor Swift, but I want to know your top five musical artists. Ooh. Well, number one um, is definitely Adele. I adore her voice and just her authenticity. And I respect it. I mean, she's, there are many out there, but I feel like she's one of the last remaining artists who like when she goes to perform, like it's just her voice and she sounds better than she does like yeah. through an album. And so she's really great. I also recently, I, I a friend sent me Pink. Pink is a, like an inspiring figure. I mean, the fact that she's able to do backflips in the air while still singing, she's quite amazing. Um, I don't know. I, oh gosh. I mean, um, I, I, I think a lot of my music is actually shaped from the activities I do. So like in the morning, um, I do orange theory, which is a workout class and they do a lot of like EDM music and, um, you know, like, so some of the EDM tracks are, are fun, but I mostly into pop. I also recently have gotten into classical music, um, mm. more. Um, I, when I go to school in LA and I would go to the LA Philharmonic Orchestra, um, at the Walt Disney Concert Hall, and um, I saw uh, Bach, who had some great performances, and um, Beethoven and um, Mozart. And so, I mean, I'm a huge fan of those works. That's a very relaxing kind of mindset to be in um, with all the craziness in the world. So um, I have a pretty wide, wide array of uh, musical taste, I would say. Well, it doesn't surprise me that you're into classical because you clearly have an acute understanding of the bigger world out there and, and all that goes with it. Um, Victor, this was a... a, a fascinating well, can i ask what about you what oh uh, for music oh music got 115 episodes you're the first person to ever asked me that so congratulations you get a special oh. prize uh, <laughs> uh i gotta say top on my list the beatles i know it sounds like probably oh. every old white guy saying that but the beatles I, I will i will throw in the obvious classic rock choices that i love stone zeppelin bob dylan but I also like to add genres. Like I love '90s gangster rap. I love '90s grunge, or Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pavement, all those bands. But as I've said to many people on this show, for me, there's the Beatles, and then there's everyone yeah. else. <laughs> so in the everyone else bucket, there's like a hundred, you know. Yeah. So I yeah. Could just same and, here, same here. But I also love classical. I love opera, Latin music. Music is just amazing. So it's interesting yeah. to hear you talk about the range of categories and artists that you're into, because I think it kind of aptly describes who you are. As a, you gave us the window into the Victor soul that I was hoping for. <laughs> uh, this was a great conversation. I hope you come back and, and continue to give us yes, your, your opinions and views as we move through the campaign and as we approach the election. Yeah, I think your perspective as a young person is, is not only fascinating, but it's really critical. So thanks for coming no. on. Thank you for having me, Andy. Take care. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards and have a great week.